When I was a kid, um, and some of your eyes, I'm kind of, maybe still kind of a kid. When I was a kid, 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 uh, Ellie, are you nine? Eleven. You're eleven. Man, Alyssa's about to turn twelve, right? And Brittany is nine, right? Okay. So I was even younger than Brittany. I must have been probably six or seven when uh, we came up to Ohio and uh, we visited my cousins. Now this was a really, it's, uh, we lived in South Carolina at the time. And uh, our house was filled with um, value brand food, which there's nothing wrong with the budget items, you know. We, we uh, were on a tight budget, my dad being a pastor, my mom taking care of the kids. Um, so we had uh, great value bacon instead of Oscar Mayer, you know. We, we had no-name maple syrup instead of Mrs. Butterworth. We had twist and chunk cookies instead of Oreos. You know, we had potato puffs instead of tater tots. You know, you get the idea. Um, so you would find those kinds of things in our kitchen if you uh, came to my house as a, as a kid. But my cousins were in a much different situation because my uncle worked at Kraft. He worked for Kraft. He was a warehouse manager. He was pretty high up in the company. And so, you know, Kraft, like the mac and cheese, best mac and cheese on the planet, Kraft. Okay, so they had all kinds of name brand stuff at their house. I mean, Kraft is a huge organization. I mean, they own all kinds of different food brands. And so when we'd go to their house, we'd get the good stuff, you know, full strength, you know, mac and cheese, not the knockoff great value stuff. And one thing that they had that I always really loved was Tang. Does anybody like Tang? Raise your hand if you like Tang. I really like Tang. It was invented for astronauts, which is pretty cool. It's, it's punchy. It's delicious. And uh, they had, it was like, it seemed like an unlimited supply of Tang. Like you'd go in their basement, and there'd be like a crate of Tang or something, you know, like it was awesome. So uh, I always look forward to going to their house. We, we wouldn't visit often, obviously. They lived like 10 hours away. But when we did, we would always get the best food. And the reason uh, that they always had this food is because my uncle would get stuff for free or get really good deals on stuff because he worked for Kraft. He, he got special treatment because he was a part of the company. And, and that right extended into his immediate family. And that makes sense, right? I mean, everyone else in the world paid the regular price because they didn't work at the company, but my uncle, who's worked at the company, got special treatment. And you all have probably had uh, situations like that, or probably maybe currently in some situations where your relationship with a company or with other people benefit you. So you, you might work for a company that gives you free food. I probably ate $1,000 worth of free Subway when I worked at Subway. I mean, it was pretty awesome. And also... It was all the money that I made went to paying for other food and Amber's engagement ring. And then luckily for them, I got to eat. So if it wasn't for Subway, we probably wouldn't get married. <laughs> so uh, Subway was a, a, oh, and Starbucks. I had a really bad caffeine addiction when I worked at Starbucks, but I got all kinds of free drinks. You probably have worked at a company that gave you some special offers. You maybe have had some friends that... Uh, you knew and they could hook you up with certain things because they got special treatment from people they knew. 
Maybe you grew up in a family business and you got to do things differently because uh, you were a part of the family and everybody else who were customers interacted differently. And it's a pretty common human experience that our relationship changes how we live life with certain situations and certain groups. It's just common knowledge. And the most common form of a group is a family, right? So when you're a member of a family, it comes with certain privileges. Like you get to sleep in the house, you get to eat the food, but it also comes with certain responsibilities, right? Alyssa and Brittany and Ellie, you get to clean your room, you get to do your chores, you get to listen to your parents. (laughs) I was hoping that you would say something like that. I was banking on it. So... When you're a part of the family, it comes with responsibilities and it comes with privileges. Now, the reason I bring up this story today about my uncle and craft and we're talking about this is because the obscure Bible story that we're looking at today reminded me of this relationship, this this kind of special treatment. So go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. And we're going to be looking at Um, A story that is only found in the book of Matthew. So, um, the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic meaning same, the Gospels meaning the good news, which uh, the Gospels are usually referred to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament. And those books record the life of Jesus from the perspective of his disciples. So, in the Synoptic Gospels, you normally get stories that look similar. So if one story is in a book, it's probably in the other Gospels. However, in the book of Matthew, there is an outlier, which is the story we're going to be looking at today, which makes it even more obscure because it's only found in Matthew. And it's only three verses long. Let's go ahead and look at it. So when they came to Capernaum, so this is Jesus and his disciples, Those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who did the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Okay, so let's start figuring out what's actually going on in the situation. First of all, what is this tax, right? Your translation may say temple tax. Well, what is this temple tax? Why is it assumed that Jesus would be paying this? Well, as with many Jewish traditions, this tax goes all the way back to the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to when Jesus, or excuse me, when uh, Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness and God was establishing his law. So in Exodus chapter 30, I got it up here on the screen for you. Uh, 11 through 16. This is where the beginning of this tax starts. So the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them so that there will be no plague among them, 
when you number them, this is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord, make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So we're not going to get into the whole atonement talk and what exactly it's for, but this half shekel described here is equivalent to drachma that we read in Matthew 17. So half shekel and two drachma, they're the same amount. And so the amount stayed the same all the way from Moses to the time of Jesus. However, notice that in this passage, it lays out a specific time when this half shekel was supposed to be collected, and it was after a census of the people. And also notice that this collection was supposed to go to the tent of meeting, also known as the tabernacle. So the temple wasn't built yet. The, the physical building wasn't built at this point in history. And they had a movable tent called the tabernacle, tabernacle that God made his dwelling. And so it served the same purpose as the temple. And we're not 100% sure how. But somewhere from Moses in Exodus 30 to the time of Jesus, there was a cultural development. And the collection of this half shekel that was only supposed to take place after a census became a cultural yearly tax on Jewish men over the age of 20. And they'd have to pay a half shekel every year. And that tax was used to take care of the things at the temple. So to help provide for the priests, to help uh, pay for the incense and the sacrifices and all the other stuff that's going on at the temple. So it became a yearly tax. There are a couple other times, we're not going to go there, that this tax is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings 12 and Nehemiah 10. And, and by Nehemiah 10, it was kind of assumed that this was a yearly thing for Jewish men. So how it turned into this yearly custom, we're not 100% sure, but we are 100% sure by the time of Jesus, it was a firmly ingrained tradition, not one mandated by man, or by God, rather, but one created by man and imposed on Jewish people. So this tax was not mandatory, right? Which is why the question says, does your teacher pay the tax? It was a question. So it wasn't mandatory, and it wasn't put into effect by a foreign government. It's not like the Romans were taxing. This is an internal Jewish thing for Jews only, which helps us understand this question. Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, the collector trying to pin Jesus as was trying to pin Jesus as an impious and rebellious Jew. Because if you were a good Jewish man, if you were observant and you cared about the things of God, you would pay this tax. It just became this kind of cultural thing like, hey, if you're a Jew, you should probably be doing this. And so the collector saying, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Is implying that Jesus is not an observant Jew. I mean, you can even just tell with the way the question is phrased. It's in the negative voice, and it's tailored to trap Jesus. 
And he's asking Simon, one of his disciples, hey, doesn't, doesn't your teacher do this? The implication being that Jesus doesn't care about Jewish tradition or support the temple. And those have been heavy accusations. So Simon, naturally defending his teacher, says, of course he pays the tax. Of course he's going to pay the tax. He's a good Jew. So Simon returns to Jesus, and before Simon has a chance to say anything, Jesus asks him a question. And when Jesus starts asking questions, we better start paying attention because that means he's going to teach us something. So he asked Simon, who pays taxes? Is it the people of the land? Is it the strangers or the sons of the king? And Simon answers with the obvious answer, which is one of the few times the disciples gave the right answer when Jesus asked a question. He says, the strangers. Yeah, it's the strangers. And that makes sense. So if a king takes money from his own children, it wouldn't make sense, right? He would essentially just be moving money from one hand to the other because his kids are going to inherit everything that he has anyway. Not only that, but their family. So they get special treatment. They, they have privileges for being in the family. So this is exactly when Jesus make his, makes his point. He says that he is exempt from the temple tax. Why is he exempt? It's because he is the son of God. Not only that, but everyone who believes in Jesus becomes a child of God alongside him. And therefore, they are also exempt from the temple tax. So not only is Jesus exempt, but his disciples are exempt. And Galatians 3.26 makes that point even clearer, more clear. You are the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is saying that there is no obligation or need to pay the tax that Simon said yes to. Now, everything up to this point seems to track pretty well. It it seems to be logical. There's this tax. Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, he doesn't need to pay it. But then the story takes this weird turn into obscurity. It takes a miraculous detour. And Jesus says, go and catch this fish, pull it up, and in that fish you're going to find a coin, and it's going to cover our tax. So Simon obeys, and he goes and fish, and he, and he catches this fish, and out he pulls a fish with a coin, which begs the question, which is why I picked this verse for this sermon. Why the fish? Why is there a fish at all? And, and why is there a miracle that needs to take place for this tax to be paid? Why, why can't Jesus just pay the tax? They, they had a purse, a, a community purse, Right? They, they could have just paid from their savings. But no. It's a miracle. So regardless if they had money or not, we don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us. There's a powerful point being made here by Jesus in this moment. So when Jesus tells Peter, go and catch this fish and pull out a coin, Jesus is giving an example at the same time of both his humility and his authority. So Jesus decides to pay the temple tax so that he's not going to needlessly offend. He's going to lay down his right to be exempt from the temple tax for the sake of peace. But he also does it in a way that undoubtedly proves that he has no need to pay the tax, right? Because he causes a miracle to happen that says, hey, I'm the son of God. I don't need to do this, but I'm going to anyway. And it's also interesting, think about this. Simon was a fisherman by trade, right? 
He probably caught thousands of fish in his life. And how many times do you think Simon pulled up a fish with money in its mouth? By show of hands, who here are my fishing enthusiasts? Who likes to go fishing? All right, so we got a few people here. How many times have you caught a fish and found money in its mouth? Never, okay? How many of you have ever heard of a story of one of your friends catching a fish and finding money in its mouth? That's exactly what I thought. It doesn't happen. (laughs) And so when Peter goes out and he's fishing, he's never probably caught a fish with money in his mouth before. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happens. Jesus performs a miracle and shows everyone that he is really the Son of God. And he also shows that he's going to provide for people's needs. He doesn't pay for just his tax. He also pays for Simon's. So, Jesus does this miracle. He pays for this task, tax in this obscure way. And he could have done it a lot of other ways, right? He could have used our savings. He could have asked a neighbor to lend him some money. He could have sold his tunic. He could have worked on a small project for some cash, but no. Jesus shows that he's completely within his power and authority and the right as the son of God to not pay this tax, but he does it anyway. And that is what true humility is. I think this, this passage shows us what true humility is, which is having the authority and the right to do something, but purposefully giving that up to serve others and to serve a larger purpose. And so I think there's a lot of meaning in these three short verses, which is why I think Matthew includes them. And Matthew, being a tax collector, maybe had a potential heart for this story. But I think there are some other things that we can learn some really important takeaways that we can model after Jesus from the story. Number one, lay down your rights to serve a larger purpose. So there is perhaps no other country in the world that is more dead set on individual rights than the United States of America. I mean, we we were founded on the rights. Our first document was independence, right? The Declaration of Independence. We are all about individuality. We're all about our rights. And don't get me wrong, I love our freedom that we have in this country. And many of our rights are not enjoyed by the rest of the world. And I recognize that. But our culture has instilled in us an attitude that says we need to take every opportunity to use our rights to benefit us. Right? So if an opportunity comes up and our rights allow us to be benefited, we should take advantage of that, regardless of who else is affected. So we see people doing crazy things like carrying uh, large rifles on their backs in the middle of a mall because they have the legal right to do it. You know, We have people who say all kinds of obscene and terrible things at inappropriate times because they have the right to do it. Right? There are lots of times, you can probably think of some right now, where people in the United States have used their rights to make a point just because they can. But Jesus shows us in this passage that even though you may have the right to do something, doesn't mean that you should use that right, especially if it is going to hurt your ability to share the good news with others, if it's going to put a stumbling block before someone when there doesn't need to be. So Jesus could have said, when when Simon came back, he's like, hey, I told these guys that you're going to pay the temple tax. Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm the son of God. I don't need to pay the temple tax. Neither do you. 
Neither do any of my disciples, because we are the children of God. We don't need to do this. And he could have caused uh, a little riot. He could have made some trouble, and he would have been putting a stumbling block in front of the people that he was there to talk to. But he didn't. He showed humility, and he didn't cause needless offense. So when you find yourself in a position of authority, or when you find an opportunity to use one of your rights, you should think about it for a second. Take some time. Be considerate. Maybe it would do more harm than it would good. Maybe if you exercised your right, you would be giving up an opportunity to share the gospel. Number two, recognize God's provision, God's provision in your life. So in this story, we see Jesus calling on the power of his father to make a small coin appear in the most unusual place. And this was done on purpose to show us how much control and power that God has over the world and how he's given that authority to his son. So just think about this, right? So God makes the universe and he makes the galaxy that holds our planet. And he made our planet and he made the atmosphere so the water wouldn't just boil off. And then he separated the water from the land, which provided this body of water in this story to exist. And then he created the right conditions in this water for the fish to live, not to mention he also made the fish. And then he made the people who were collecting the tax for the temple that he instructed to be built and made the materials for for the temple to be built. And then he also made the metal that the coin was cast from, and he put all of that into place so that Peter could go and cast his rod, which were also made from things that, that God made, so that he could pull out the fish, get the coin, and pay the tax to his own temple. Right? So to put it simply, God has the control over everything, and all of everything is his. And so when God is going to take care of us, he's really going to take care of us because everything is his. And we are inheritors of the sonship of God through Jesus. We are his children. We belong to him. And lastly, I want us to take a warning from the tax collector. Don't be like the tax collector. I'm not saying don't do your job. What I am saying is don't let man-made tradition be the tool that you use to measure someone's faith, right? You've probably seen it before in churches. You may have experienced it yourselves. There, there are sometimes certain ways of talking, maybe certain actions or traditions that are expected of people that show that they really take their faith seriously. You know, if you were really a Christian, you'd be doing this thing. You'd be going to this. You'd be saying these kinds of words. You'd be praying in this kind of way. And there are some really, really important, obviously, foundational beliefs and practices that every Christian should hold to. Right? Right? There's kind of this basics of belief. And then there are a lot of other things that are our own creations that we use to measure other people's faith. Man-made traditions, like this two drachma temple tax. It wasn't mandatory. It wasn't even what God technically instructed in Moses' time. It transformed into something else, and then it became this cultural burden on all the people 
And the tax collector says, if you don't do this, then you're not really a good Jew. And I think we as Christians can do the same thing with our own things that we make up and saying, if you don't do this, then you really aren't a good Christian or you don't take your faith seriously. We should do our absolute best to avoid those types of things in our church and in our individual lives. They're the only thing that should get in the way of someone being a Christian is Jesus, right? Do you get what I'm saying? We shouldn't offend people. We shouldn't have our own set of standards that we hold people to. It should be Jesus' standards. It should be Jesus' character that are the prerequisites to faith. And if that offends someone, if that gets in the way of them becoming a Christian, so be it. That's exactly what Jesus asks us to do. So if that stops people, that's okay. But we should not be what's standing in the way of someone's faith. We shouldn't be putting our own weight on top of what Jesus already commands. So I hope over the last few weeks you've enjoyed looking at some of these less common and maybe misunderstood passages of the Bible. And there are so many. I've even heard from uh, you guys over the last few weeks. They're like, hey, Josiah, what about this? And they got into some texts, even from Don. He's like, hey, I have this idea. Why did Jesus spit in the mud and rub it on some guy's eyes? And I'm like, that's a good thing to talk about. That would be, that would be interesting. And, but we don't have that much time because next Sunday is Palm Sunday. But maybe we'll revisit these stories again at some point. But you don't have to wait for me to do a sermon about it to look into it yourself. Because you can do research. You can go home. You can run into these difficult passages and rather just passing them by, go dig into them. Because on the other side of that is going to be deeper understanding. And that's worthwhile. We need to keep growing. We need to keep seeking truth. And most importantly, we need to be humble about it. Pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to look into your word over the last few weeks and to understand uh, what you were doing in the lives of these individuals and uh, how you instructed us to live um, through these uh, less known stories. I pray that we continue to seek truth, that we continue to have the wisdom to understand your words. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.